Okay, everyone has the sheets? Okay. So I mentioned to you that we are, we sort of closed up Safer Bree sheet last week and that I wanted to enter into Safer Shemot, but we're not going to be doing, um, again, I didn't want it to be too much overlap. I've spoken in the class, in past classes, about the concept of uh, sort of why our origins are in slavery, right? Because again, we've asked this question before. We could have, Hashem could have, let's just argue, Hashem. Um, yeah. Do you mind just, I'm sorry, do you mind just shutting that on your way in? Thank you so much. Okay. Um, Thank you. We've asked the question before and we're going to talk about it again today. We're going to focus more on it. The issue of this notion of beginning outside and then coming in. Right? And we, I'm trying to think if I need my, I do. Hold on, sorry, I need my whiteboard. We've asked the question before. We said, in theory, Hashem could have chosen a native. I'll do it. Here. Better? Thank um, We said, in theory, Hashem could have chosen a native Canaanite, right? And said, you are being tapped to start the nation of Israel. Stay put, right? Or just stay where you are and you're going to inherit the whole land. But Hashem doesn't. He chooses someone from the outside. And brings him in, lech lecha, right? He brings someone from the outside. And then even once that outsider gets in, Hashem could have said, okay, now Abraham, good job. Pitch a tent, stay put, and have children, lots of them, and they're going to turn into a nation. They're going to, you know, evolve into something grand, and they're going to inherit this land. But he doesn't. Hashem says, and his children go down to Mitzrayim, and our beginnings are once again on the outside, and it's only once we make the trek back that we get to the land, right? So this is a really, really important question that, again, we take it sometimes as a given because it's our narrative, so we don't think too much about it. But it's something that I think is really, really important. Now my computer is reacting and opening up all the files. Sorry. Um, but it's something that I think is really, really critical to start thinking about, and I think it's going to tap into a really, really important topic about space. Now, before we get to that, just for, again, I've mentioned it in other classes, so I don't want to be too repetitive, but I do think, um, aside from what we're going to be discussing today, I think our beginnings in slavery is critical for a lot of other reasons also that we're not going to be addressing. I think the whole, I've mentioned it a bunch of times in the past, the whole relationship between Hashem and, Eretz, and B'nai Yisrael conceived of as this sort of suzerain vassal treaty, this idea that we need to be exclusively loyal to God the same way that a vassal had to be exclusively loyal to his suzerain and their legal covenants form the basis of our understanding of monotheism. So I think coming, being redeemed from slavery and then being grateful to God and therefore entering into the covenant with him is one really obvious answer. I think it's also important, and I think this is a really, really important discussion for um, sort of for our understanding of how we now exist once again as being the dominant or the majority in the land, is that Hashem says over and over and over, right? Lo tone et hager, you cannot abuse, you cannot mistreat those that are outsiders within your inside. Ki rim ha'yitem ba'eretz mitzrayim. It's almost as if Hashem sort of wants us to understand 
what it is to be the minority, what it is to be the outcasts, what it is to be the ones on that liminal, in that liminal space, so that when we are the majority and we are the ones in charge and we are the making, making the rules, we know how to create a just society that is born of compassion and understanding and everything else that's necessary to create that type of society. Okay, so those are all, and then of course also, sorry, the obvious reason that's also offered in the Torah explicitly, is that the, the people of Canaan had to live here, right, or sort of that we had to bide our time outside of the land because ultimately the land of Canaan was going to spit out the people that were being immoral, and so we had to bide our time outside until the land was ready for us. Right? And of course, looming over that, as we've spoken many, many times, is the implicit threat that if we don't behave, the land will spit us out, same way it spit them out. What I want to do today, though, is talk about a different concept. And again, nothing that we're saying today, no ideas are ever mutually exclusive. Right? What we're talking about today is just, I think, another element of how we understand space that's a little different from the more um, sort of obvious answers that are offered in the text itself. So Mercea Eliadi, who I mentioned in the class before, and he's on your sheets, is um, he was a Roman historian of religion, actually. He died in the mid-'80s. He's relatively recent. His writings are, are relatively recent writings. Um, he talks about a couple of concepts, and he's not the first to talk about them, but again, sort of in line with all of the uh, personalities we've been talking about in this course, one of the things they're sort of doing is comparing the mythologies, comparing the religions, and coming up with these overlapping themes and overlapping motifs. So he talks about a couple of things. He talks first about, and I'm going to put the words up on the board, um, the first word he uses is hierophany. Or hierophany, right? Coming from the combination of higher, which is sacred in Greek, and then ophany, which is the revelation, right? Something appearing, Sorry, right? It's glaring. Better? But can everyone on this side see it? Hierophany means the appearance of something sacred, right? So a theophany would be when Hashem appears to someone. A hierophany could be anything sacred that appears or, or something is revealed. Okay? And he talks about how hierophanies essentially, he talks about space, H-I-E-R-O-P-H-A-N-Y. What is hierophany? <laughs> the, the Greek word for sacred, right? Anything sacred that's revealed. Okay? Now, he talks about space as something that is, and again, he's not limiting it to a specific time or a specific place. He's saying all of humanity, we're sticking with the Jungian sort of approach, all of humanity conceives of space like this. And it's all sort of this one big homogeneous space. But then essentially what we create are these sort of centering places that break up that homogeneity. There's a place that breaks up space. And that place becomes that place because it's associated with a hierophany. Okay? Now, give me an example in Tanakh where a person is just walking around in this big homogeneous area. And then all of a sudden, he has to stop. Right? Moshe is walking around in the middle of the desert, and then Hashem says, and then, of course, Hashem appears. That would be a theophany, one variation of this. Hashem appears in the burning bush, and he says to Moshe, Shalna lecha me'al lecha. Right? Why? Because the land you're standing on, Admat Kodeshu. It wasn't Kodesh five seconds ago. It's Kodesh now because Hashem is appearing there. Okay, so we have many variations of this in Tanakh, and again, lots and lots of different variations. We're not going to be looking at all of them today. But essentially what happens is there's a sense that in that space, okay, something is different, something is more real than anywhere else in space, and it orients 
people, and again, he uses the term religious man, which isn't specific to Jewish or Christian. It's just anyone who is cognizant of something greater than the physical world that we see and interact with. Okay? Now, um, he talks about this idea that, well, if I asked you even, forget him, you could guess this, okay? If I asked you structurally, right? Forget Uncle Moishi for a second, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is everywhere. Structurally, okay? If I asked you to tell me how the world is structured, and even if I give you a hint, let's say it's, it's sort of has this tripartite division, it's three, it's divided into three levels. How do we envision, even though we know it's not really like that, but when we talk about the world and envision the world structurally, how do we do that? Okay, there's heavens up here. Right? How do we know, and, and how do we know, and again, I'm speaking now from Eliade's perspective that all humanity thinks this way, but let's just back up and, and sort of corroborate that Tanakh does also. Give me examples where we imagine Hashem up in heaven. What? Yeah, for sure, but, that's, but, then, but then we're just assuming Hashem is up there, right? But give me places where Hashem actually sort of corroborates this structuralism that we, yeah? Carcina. Okay, hold, we're gonna get to that. That's an even more sophisticated. Ah, okay, so excellent, Yishayahu, right? When Yishayahu and Perak Vav is having his theophany, right? So he's sitting there and it says that Hashem, it's filled with smoke, the Hechal is filled with smoke, and it says, it, we, em- we envision the Kisei kavod on top because Shulav Mele'im right? Either the footstool or the, coat, the, the tail coattails of God are filling up the Hechal. But we even have more God himself. When does God himself? Up. Hold, we're going to get to Har Sinai is an even more... Yes, correct. What? God said God will go down in order to hear the cries of the people or what it is. Okay. When, we are, when we're building Migdal, when humanity is building Migdal Bavel, Hashem says, let me go down and see what's going on down there with those human people, beings, right? When Hashem wants to go down and see what's happening in stone, right? Erdana ve'er'eh, let me go down and see. So again, it's not that we believe God is, it's that the Tanakh, Dibrat Torah Kilshon B'nai Adam, corroborates the way that the human mind needs to structure the universe in order to understand it. So if Hashem is up here and we're here, do we believe in a down there? Sheol. Hmm? Okay, so give me an example. There's one really good example. Right, for example, Yaakov says, right, well, if you don't, right, if I never see him, him again, then I'm just going to go, I'm going to read El Sheol, right? I'm just going to go down to Sheol. And, and uh, what you call Eov talks about it as well. But there's a really one fascinating example. Go to, what? I heard someone say it. What? Ah, so interesting. I think Korach might be a good example, but it's not, it's not explicit enough. Go to Shmuel Aleph for a second, Perak Chachet, 1 Samuel, if you remember. And again, these are words that when we're in the middle of the story, we don't even pay attention to them. But when we start looking for how the Tanakh conceives of the structured universe, all of a sudden it becomes so clear. If you remember at the end of his life, Shaul is very frustrated because Hashem is not responding to him, right? He's not answering him. Shaul keeps trying to reach out to God and he's not responding in any of the traditional manners of communication. And so Shaul resorts to going to the witch, right? Which he ironically outlawed because it goes against the halachot. Um, in Dvarim, but look at what happens. Just look there at the language. Perak Chavchet. What is the Chavchet? 
Shmuel Aleph, Perak Chavchet, chapter 28, verse 11. She doesn't yet know who Shaul is. He has to go incognito, right? Because she's not going to do it for him. She'll think it's a trap. Pasuk Yud Aleph. But he wants to summon. Who is he trying to? Who does he want to communicate with? Shmuel. What's the problem? There's a little glitch. Shmuel's dead. Okay? Pasuk Yud Aleph. Vatomer ha'isha. Et mi a'alelecha. Excuse me, a'lelach. Vayomer. Et Shmuel ha'alili. Okay? It's Yud Aleph. Who should I bring up from down here to join us back here? Okay, and by the way, in fact, she does. And what does Shmuel say when he gets there? Why'd you bother me? Right? Why are you bringing me up? I have no news for you. Everything I said to you before I died still holds true. Okay, now, that's how the human mind structures the universe. And again, consistently throughout time. There's another element as well, which is what we're going to call, what, not what we call, but what... Eliadi and others call the axis mundi, okay, or the navel of the universe. And you have a really pretty picture. It was so much prettier in color. But if you look at it, you have, this is an example of the axis mundi, okay, or one image depiction of it among the millions probably throughout time. Axis mundi is essentially, okay, that place, okay, it's often depicted in various images, but very, very consistently. Often as a tree, many times as a mountain, sometimes as a ladder or a portal, the axis mundi is that place in the universe from where we can connect between all the different levels of the universe. Okay, The axis mundi is often believed to be the center and more often than not the place where creation happened, okay? And where creation will always happen, meaning, what does that mean creation will always happen? It means that space is the most real, right? Where we're living is only one sliver of the universe, but if we can connect to what's above and what's below, then where we're standing is actually the most real place in the universe, okay? Now, tell me if we have an axis mundi in Tanakh. What? Okay, so hold that, excellent. We're gonna get to that in the very, very end. Before that, look in Tanakh. What is our okay, tree in the garden? What does it enable us to do? Right, the Etadat is, we have a tree. We have that sacred tree. But what happens, what does the tree enable us to do? Hashem, it says, mitalech bagan. Hashem is walking around in the garden the whole time. Only once we eat from that tree are we suddenly cognizant of Hashem and then we put on loin and then we, so then we hide behind the bushes because we're all scared that Hashem is going to punish us. So we become cognizant of what's above. We also become more aware of each other, which we've spoken about, right? First they were erumim behim loyit boshashu, and then they eat from the tree and all of a sudden they're putting on loincloths and covering up that which, distinguish, which distinguishes. And then, right, so we have this, this, and then what else? What happens once we eat from the tree? Why do we have to leave? Because what else is in the garden? Etzachayim. And now there's the danger, and we did this in the first class. Now there's the danger that we might eat from it, so we have to be kicked out. But we all, there's only the danger that we're going to eat from the tree of life, because now we are aware of the notion of Sheol. When we become cognizant of our mortality, when we connect to the idea that there's something beneath, and not just what I look around and see, but I realize that there's Sheol, then I want to eat from the tree of life, and then God kicks me out, because by definition I have to remain mortal. 
okay? Give me other examples, and we're gonna get back to the, to the Gan Eden in a couple of seconds, but give me another example. There's a beautiful, beautiful couple of Tsukim where we see this notion of axis Munzi being articulated by one of the Avot. Okay. Sheol is whatever the underworld is, where people go after they, di- after they die. Let's use an example with Shmuel. Okay? It's the most, right, the underworld, not the world of the living. The world of the dead. What? Okay, go to Shmuel Aleph, Parak Chavchet, very quickly. Okay, uh, excuse me, Breshit Chavchet. I don't know why I said Shmuel. Breshit Chavchet. Now, we've read these psukim so many times, but it's only when we understand this image of the Axis Mundi and how we conceive of the universe that suddenly Yaakov's reaction to his dream makes sense. Okay, Parak Chavchet. Go to um, Pasuk... Pasuk Yud Aleph. Okay? It's chapter 28, verse 11. He goes, we all know the famous story. He goes to sleep because it's getting dark and he takes some of the rocks that are there and he makes himself a pillow. Pasuk Yud Bet, Vayachalom Bihinei, Sulam Mutzav Arza, Virosho Magia Hashamayma. Okay? Vihinei Malachei Elohim Olim Viordimbo. So there is that point of connection between the world that Yaakov is sleeping on and the world above. Vihinei Hashem nitzavalav. Vayomer ani Hashem elokei Avraham avicha velokei Yitzchak haaretz, etc., etc. And he gives him the whole nivuah and the, the, basically the promise that he's going to give him. And then jump down to Tet Zion and look at Yaakov's reaction. Vayikatz Yaakov mishnato. He wakes up in the middle. Vayomer achen yesh Hashem bamakom hazeh. I didn't know when I got here that this place was what? Sacred. Vayira. But he gets, right? Vayira is not scared. He's in awe. Yira. Pachad is fear. You run away when you're scared. Yira is awe. You're, you can't move. You're, you're transfixed. Vayira. Vayomar. Manura makom Ein ze ki imbeit Elohim. Vize sha'ar hashamayim. Okay? And again, if you look at various depictions of the Axis Mundi throughout the world, it's oftentimes a gate, it's oftentimes a ladder, it's oftentimes that thing which enables people to commune between the two places. I'll give you one other really, really quick example. Everyone mentioned this, and we're going to get back to it, but go to Shemot Yutet, Exodus 19. Pasuk Yud Chet, verse 18, says as follows. Vihar Sinai, what? It's Yudtet Yudchet. Vihar Sinai Ashan Kulo, why was it filled with smoke? Mipnei Asher Yarad Alav Hashem. Okay, because God came down from up there to the mountain. Ba'esh Vayaal Ashano Keashan Hakivshan Vayacherad Kol Hahar Meod. Okay, it's filled with smoke because God came down and he is now on the mountain. By the way, um, I actually recently read that it's very, very fascinating that the mountain or the tree, the mountain really, let's use as an example, right, was believed to be the axis mundi because you look at it, right? Look at a mountain. It's so high. No one can ever reach the summit and it's covered with the clouds. You really imagine that if you climb up high enough, God can be found there. And they actually, someone recently, I don't remember where I read this, but it was fascinating, said that now with, you know, with cable cars and with, ca- with regular even cars, we can get up to the tops of mountains. And so they've lost their allure. They've lost their, we're no longer in awe of the tips of mountains, but now outer space has become that unchartered territory, 
right? The, the desire to get to the moon, or to, to get to the moon, to get to Mars, to get to other planets, right? To be able to get up there is sort of a new or more modern manifestation of this sort of this phenomenon of wanting to get up high where we imagine God to be. So there's something very, very interesting there. Okay, so there's no question that Tanakh acknowledges that there's a sense of sacred space when God is there, okay? But I think, and this is why I think this, we're going to be talking about why we began outside, I think Tanakh also has a very, very, very different slant than, than I would say many, most people have, okay? Um, now, if I asked you, okay, if you had to imagine God appeared on Har Sinai and he revealed himself to everyone that was standing there, what would you imagine would happen to Har Sinai afterwards? Huh? Um, okay, or what else? Ah, I forgot to read. Wait, hold on one second. I forgot to read something really, really fascinating. Go back to your sources for one second, and we're going to get to Har Sinai in 10 seconds. Okay, look at your sources here. It's really, really fascinating. Dur Anki, link between heaven and earth, was a name applied to a number of Babylonian sanctuaries. It occurs at Nippur, Larsa, Sipara, and elsewhere. Babylon has many names, among them house of the base of heaven and earth, or link between heaven and earth, right? Okay? But it was also in Babylon that the connection between earth and the lower regions was made, for the city had been built Bab Apsi, the gate of Apsu. I'm mentioning this now, just hold this image in your head till the end of class. It's really, really important. Apsu, if some of you might remember, being the name for the waters of chaos before creation. I don't know if we did it in this course, I don't even remember anymore, where we said that the chaotic forces of water that were threatening to submerge the world, and then of course Marduk had to come down and submerge those forces. So Apsu comes up from the underworld. By the way, just to answer your question in terms of the underworld, in Tanakh, it's where these, right, where dead people are, right? But in, in other ancient Near Eastern religions, it's also where the demons would, we don't have demons, okay? And we have only, it would be where the demons would come up from. So for example, on their days of purgation, their Yom Kippur, they would throw their scapegoat out into the desert so they could sort of quell the demons. Okay, so <coughs> I think it was, it was beyond what it is for us in Tanakh. But Apsu being the name for the waters of chaos before creation, the Apsu, the Tahom, symbolized the chaos of waters, the preformal modality of cosmic matter. Right, so everything under there is what happens before we create order from chaos. And at the same time, the world of death, all that precedes and follows life. The gate of Apsu and the rock containing the mouth of Tehom designate not only the point of intersection and hence communication between the lower world and earth, but also the difference in ontological status between these two cosmic planes. There is a break of plane between the Tehom and the rock of the temple that blocks its mouth, passage from the virtual to the formal, from death to life. The watery cast that preceded creation at the same time symbolizes the retrogression to the formless that follows on death, return to the larval modality of existence, right? So that's where things are before they are formed, then they come up to this world and they are formed, and then they go back down there when they are, right, when they're sort of returning to the formless. That is how the Axis Mundi was understood. Now, I'm going to go back to the question I asked a couple of minutes ago. If we, if I asked you, okay, Hashem appeared on Har Sinai. Where's Har Sinai? Yeah, we have, well, we have no idea, really. Right? Yeah, maybe Jabal. We don't know. 
right? Isn't that crazy? Hashem appeared there. You would think it would become what? The Mecca of, of Judaism. Why isn't that a place where we go to pilgrimages? Why isn't that a place where we go and we visit every time we want to pray? We want to... Hashem appeared. It was sacred. There were very important laws. The Shlosha Yemei Hagbala, where you can't come close and you can't go up. And only certain people, certain tiers of society can go up to a certain amount. And then after it's over, it's over. Okay? Now, go back to, we asked, we said, we said there's the equivalent, so to speak, of the notion of Axis Mundi in Gan Eden. But is, Gan, is that place where creation actually happened? No. Where does creation happen? Everywhere. And then what happens? Vaita Hashem Gan Be'eden. Right? He creates man. And then he makes a garden. And then he takes man from the world into the garden. And that's where, in theory, this tree of life and the tree of Da'at Tovara is. But then we go back out here where we fully become human and we have children and we work the earth and we do all those other things that man was created to do initially. So even from the beginnings, the sense that the cause the axis mundi is where the cosmological beginnings are is already undermined. Okay? And then go to the Avram example. <coughs> if the place were in fact this holy, spectacular place, either our forefather would have been born there, or what would Hashem have said to him? That's what he says. But if it's, the, if it's a place that is inherently more sacred than anywhere else, go to the place that is more sacred than anywhere else because only there can I, right? There would be something said. But it's not. There's a sense of going from the outside to the inside. And then Hashem is going to consecrate that place as the place of Abraham. Because the important thing was following God. Ah, okay. Okay, so excellent. So one of the things that's happening from the beginning is that we have this dichotomy set up between home and exile, right? Between sacred space and everything else around it. But we're almost never sure which is which or why the sacred space is in fact sacred. By the way, the same thing even, and again, if we follow all the beginnings, Moshe also doesn't actually, Moshe is sort of this like utopian, utopia not ideal, utopian in the original word, right? Meaning he doesn't belong anywhere. He's kind of born to Hebrew parents in Galut already, and then to be saved, he's sent out to the Nile, and then to be saved again, he's brought to a home which is only further from his parents' home, and then he flees to Midian where he names his son Gershom because Ger Hayiti Be'eretz, right? There's sort of this sense of Moshe never actually belonging. Our leader, the one that should have been Right? But the paradigm of leaving Mitzrayim is that we're never sure about place. Okay? He, when he encounters Hashem, that place becomes holy. Okay? We get to Mahar Sinai. Har Sinai becomes this very, very sacred place. And then the next day, it's all over. And it's no longer sacred. And if someone wanted to run up and try to climb Har Sinai two weeks after Matan, or not two weeks, because they were still in the 40, right? Let's say two months after, Har, after Matan Torah, go right up. Okay? Give me another example of something where we imagine is sacred and yet it doesn't remain sacred. It happens right after Har Sinai. Go to Shemot Parakhaf Dalai, Exodus 24. Exodus 24, Shemot Chaf Dalid. <coughs> right? So in Chaf Dalid, we have this really, really important introduction where it says, Right? El Moshe Amar, Alei El Hashem Atava Aron Nadav Avihu Vishivim Mizikne. So you're going to go up and Hashem is going to give you all the commandments, right? And again, go up. And what does Hashem tell them? Jump down to Parak Chavchet. 
the intro of Vayidaber Hashem el Moshe Limor, Daber al Bnei Israel v'Yichuli Truma, Mi'et Kol Ish Asher Yidvenu Libo Tikhu Et Trumati. And what are the famous words Hashem says about building, eh, building a Mishkan? And now again, we're so used to the sentence, so so say it first. But imagine what it would, how it would end, if we fully embrace the notion of. <laughs> Axis Mundi as being a place that was intrinsically or inherently more sacred than anywhere else from the beginnings of the world, Hashem would have said, Yasuli Mikdash, right? On that spot. But what does Hashem say? And what is the Mishkan? The Mishkan is a tent that we build, and Hashem comes in and he settles, and then what? And then when it's time to move, we pack it up and we move on to the next space, right? And then we build it again and Hashem Shrinah comes. Hashem himself is moving around with us in the Midbar. Where Hashem, do you, I have water up here. For me. Where Hashem settles becomes sacred, right? And even Nadav and Avihu, if they come in the wrong way, are going to be incinerated. It is so sacred, but it's locomotive. It's constantly moving around. It is not locative. Go back to your sheets for one second. <clears throat> Okay, and this is um, an article by Benjamin Summer. He's actually addressing the issue of Nadav and Avihu, um, but I'm just, I took this little paragraph out of context. <clears throat> Thus, the troubled rhetoric of beginnings in the Torah is a rhetoric of displacement in several sense. These texts describe the displacement of the notion of sacred space and those who belong in it. Home is displaced or supplemented by exile. Divine presence itself is displaced into an ambulatory tent, that's the Mishkan, located in a desert. And its arrival at that tent affects a radical displacement of the priesthood and of the orderly universe to which they aspire. That what he's referring to is the Nadav and Avihu episode. At the same time, these texts involve displacement in another sense. The temporal trope of beginnings is displaced into a spatial axis Troubled beginnings serve as a figure for geographical confusion, right? We don't know where we belong. Is Gan Eden the center or is the outside the center? Which one is it, right? On one, is the land the center? Is it? it follows then that beginnings in the Torah recall divine presence. For the texts we have examined, subject each to the same term. Beginnings and divine presence alike are constantly deferred, constantly subject to a process of espacement. Right? meaning the place becomes sacred by virtue of God being there. Okay? By the way, look, and we're going to look in a couple of other examples. When Hashem talks in Devarim, if you remember about abolishing pagan worship, right? what's the focus there? Go to Devarim for a second, Parak uh, Zion. Devarim Zion. Chapter 7. Right? Hashem is saying, when you get into the land, the very beginning of the parak, right? everyone's going to sort of be um, uprooted or, or dislodged right, from the land. And then jump down to Pasuk 5, uh, to Pasuk Hey. Ki imko ta'asula hem mizbechote hem ti totsu umatsovote hem ti shaberu vashare hem ti gadeu psile hem ti surfum ba'esh. 
It's not enough to not worship their gods. What do we have to do? We have to abolish the sense of the place that they considered sacred as sacred. Okay, we are abolishing their notion of sacred space. Okay, let me ask, if there is one place in Tanakh that we would imagine fits in with the sense of, yeah, this is holy permanently, what would it be? Okay, so let's go back to the Beit HaMikdash. Now, who's the one that wants to build the Beit HaMikdash initially? Okay, so go to Shmuel Bet Parag Zion. And again, one of the things we're going to see, so it's really, really important, one of the things that's going to come out of this class is that we have to be able to distinguish between what the Torah says in one portion of our, Tanakh, excuse me, says in one portion of our history and then what's said later on, okay? So it's important now not to superimpose what is said later about the Mishkan. Now we are just reading Shmuel Bet for what it says. We're looking at the dialogue between Hashem and, and David through Natan Hanavi, okay? Parak Zion, okay, um, and it says as follows: Parak Zion pasuk Aleph. Vayikasheria ki yashav hamelech pivetel. VeHashem iniachlo misaviv mikol oivav. So David is now sitting pretty because he got rid of all of the threats. Shaul is gone. The Plishtim have been defeated for the most part. He has secure borders. Vayomar hamelech el Natan hanavi. And now he says to Natan. Here I am sitting in this beautiful palace built of cedar, right? And um, Elat Mazar claims she found it right near the old city, if anyone wants to go. So what's, what's bothering David? He's in the palace and Hashem is still in this, in this little tent. For a separate discussion, maybe a Yom Yun one time, very interesting that Natan sort of shoots from the hip, and then now Hashem comes to him, right? Sometimes Nevi'im get it wrong, and the question is why, and if they were speaking in the name of God, he seems to be, and yet, that night, Go to tell David as follows. What, you want to build me a bayit? What's that word, li? Shivti. What's li shivti as opposed to vishachanti? Well, lishkon is to dwell, right? To sort of temporarily be. La shevet is you're building me a permanent abode, and then Hashem goes on. Kilo yashavti bevayet l'miyom ha'aloti et bnei Yisrael mimitzrayim ve'ad hayom hazeh. I have never had a house. I've been perfectly fine being in the Ohel Moed. And now this is kind of this like sarcastic or almost, I don't know if you could call Hashem's response snarky, right? But In all the years that I've been in this permanent little temporary dwelling, have you ever heard me turn around and say, hey, Shevet God, how come you never built me a permanent Beit Mikdash? Hashem is saying, have you ever heard me say that? David is saying, I want to build Hashem a Beit Mikdash, and what is Hashem saying? Thanks, I'm good. Okay. Now, in the end, Hashem does acquiesce. Okay. And if we had to venture a guess, why does Hashem allow David to build a Mikdash? He didn't. Well, we're going to get to a Shlomo, but why? 
because the people need it, because a sign, don't forget, nowadays we have separation of church and state, right? We have the sense that the leader is democratically elected. In the ancient world, the way you show your authority as a king is that you have been, your kingship has been sanctioned by the divine. And so the temple and the palace were always connected because it was a way of speaking about the authority of the king. And so Israel needed it, David needed it, the lands needed it. And so Hashem says, fine, but you're not going to build it down the line. Shlomo will build it. Okay? Okay. Go to um, Shmuel Bet, Perak Chaf Dalid. Now, when Hashem agrees to let David build it, does he ever say to David, fine, you could build it, but you have to make sure it's in the holiest place in the world because that's the only place you could build it. How does, how does David choose where to build it? Okay. End of Perak Chaf Dalid. And we're not going to read through the entire Perak because it's a really, really fascinating, really complicated Perak. Um, but basically, there was, David does a census of the people and Hashem punishes him. And there's a major, major Magifat. And many, many people died. And the Malach Hamavet, so to speak, is making its way through the land, just killing people on its way. Um, and when he gets to, we're going to start with Pasuk Ted Zion. Okay. Start with its Parakhavdalid Pasuk Tadzayan. The Malach is getting to Vaishlach Yadoha Malach Yerushalayim, Lishachata, okay, this angel of death. Vayinachem Hashem El Hara'ah. But Hashem, there's this notion of Vayinachem, and it's a whole important question in, in Sefer Shmuel altogether. Vayomer la Malacha Mashrit ba Amravata Heref Yadecha. Umalacha Shem Haya im Goren Haravna Hayibusi. Hashem says, You've done enough. The killing must come to an end. And it happened to be that they were by this goren, this threshing floor of this guy, Aravna, the Jebusite. Why was the Jebusite living in Yerushalayim? Because they were the ones that lived in Yerushalayim until David conquered it. And David starts um, sort of apologizing to God for everything he did. He recognizes his misdeeds. Go up and bring a misbeach to God there. So the guy that owns the land sees the king and he's on in his threshing floor. So he comes out and he bows to him. Okay, now again, this is sort of a separate thread. We, as the readers, have these sort of dramatic irony. We know Hashem has already decided to stop the plague. In David's mind, he's helping the plague stop. And that's a whole separate discussion about um, the point of Shmuel. But, and now there's a whole discussion in Suze that's very similar to the Marat HaMach Pela. Aravna says, no, 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 take it. And David says, no, 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 I'm going to pay for it. And we're going to have a contract. And it's going to be signed. And we're going to keep it. Okay? That is what happens, and that is how the area of Harav Nahayivusi is bought. And then you jump down to the end of the Pasuk. The end. Okay, who initiates the buying of the land? Okay, now. Go to Melachim Aleph, Parakhet. And remember, because this is terrible PR, if you can script thousands of workers for a massive building project and you tax all the citizens insanely high taxes, which ends up splitting up the melucha, 
okay? What's the worst thing you could do on the day that you are dedicating that first building or cutting the ribbon? Sleep in. What? Sleep in. <laughs> Sleep in. Good. What else? Well, or what if you say, thank you so much all for all your toil and all your money. This building is really extraneous. We actually don't need it. Look at what Shlomo Melech says in Parakhet. Pasuk. We are in Pasuk Chafhei. Malach, sorry, Malachim Aleph. I apologize. Malachim Aleph, Parakhet. Okay. Shlomo is dedicating this Beit HaMikdash. It was a wonder of the world. He had conscripted contractors from Tyre and from, right, from everywhere. Viata Hashem. And now he says, Chafhei, verse 25, Chafhei. Viata Hashem Elokei David Avi et asher dibarta lo lemor lo yikaret lecha ish. Sorry, I'm jumping down. My apologies. I'm actually skipping to verse, to Pasuk Chafzayin. Okay. He says as follows, Ki ha'umnam yeshev elukim al ha'aref, hinei ha'shamayim u'shmei ha'shamayim lo yechal kalucha, af ki abayit hazeh asher biniti. Baniti. What's he saying? Hashem, you're everywhere. Are you really going to be limited to this bayit? And then he goes on and says, anyone, any Jew, anywhere that they are, direct your tefillot to this place, and Hashem will hear you, and Hashem will answer you. Okay, that kind of undermines what? What it's all about. Okay, now again, there's no question the place became sanctified because if we read a little further in the parak, they go in, Hashem's Shechina comes, the same Anam that was present on Har Sinai comes and fills up the, the space of the Kodesh Kodashim. And from that second on, no one is allowed to venture into the Kodesh Kodashim except for the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur. So there's no question that the place becomes sanctified with God's presence. Okay? But on the flip side, there's also, right, it's almost like there's this constant, um, I would get, subversive message. Just as we're building the Mikdash, the text is also telling us it's not really necessary from the perspective of Tanakh. Okay? So, here's the question. Um, actually, you know what? Read inside. I have another great quote. And this is actually going to help us understand why that is. Um, if you look in source three, um, it says as follows. Jewish faith, sorry, source three on the pages. Jewish faith defies centrality and the skewing through of heaven and earth and underworld in one axis mundi. The place is meant as a medium for the sacred only so far as it does not become the sacred's substitute. This is very similar, by the way, to what other concept that we have. The aniconism, right? We are not allowed to have idols. Why not? Because God is because not we big. start because we the human mind starts to conflate symbol and right and the real thing, so to speak. The shift of the visual to the voice, and from the voice to the book, right? Hashem appears sometimes, let's say, as the Esh or as the Anan, but then we hear Hashem's voice, and then what we receive is the covenant, so to speak, the book are indicative of such undermining of the center. The vocative and the textual, so the voice of Hashem and the text of the book that we receive, de-center the locative, meaning they become, or they undermine the notion of center. They become the primary centering objects and things. While the place is indispensable, the true sacred center is the common faith of the people given in the book. They are at once the people of the land and the people of the book. 
Consequently, the notion of place is built on resistance, advocating the essential distance between the people and their land. Accordingly, importance is laid on leaving as a counterpoint to arrival, on exit, on exit to resist nativity, the taken for grantedness of space. Right? So for example, when we're about to enter the land, Moshe gets up on Harbuzim and Harival and says, hey, listen up. If you choose this, you will remain in the land. And if not, what is always looming as a threat? Exile. Exile is a looming threat because we are in the land because we earn it by keeping the covenant, not because we are there because that place is inherently more sacred. Okay? And again, don't worry, we're going to redeem ourselves there. Um, and on presence is but a trace of absence. The historicity of the sacred place and the fact that the sacredness of the place is rooted beyond it in God are two of the same coins. The sanctity of the temple, like that of the land, has no meaning but in a historical context. So the Beit HaMikdash becomes sacred because one time Hashem came down and his Shekhinah filled the, the, the space, i.e. at the level of the relationship between the people and its God. Sacredness is a matter of selection. It is always endowed to what in itself is not sacred. Okay? Now, that I think is really, really, really critical. However, okay, all of this is before we get into the land and first temple period. And the Tanakh is very clear. There is no space that is inherently sacred. There is nothing mythical or cosmological about the place. It becomes sacred because David dedicates the space because Hashem's Shekhinah appears, etc. Okay? Jump to, let's talk about, the second temple period. Okay? The early years when Divrei Hayamim is being written. Yeah? Doesn't the word Kodesh Kedusha mean to separate? Yeah. So does it, how does that fit in? I mean, I think it's that Hashem decides what is Kadosh. Hashem sets that space aside. Um, what, I mean, what are you asking how it fits in? Well, because it seems like it's an important place. And it, it is an important place. We're, not, we're, not, we're never questioning that these places are not sacred. right? We're saying, why are they sacred? And the Tanakh is saying they are sacred because you are turning them into sacred space. Not because there was this one place in the world that was the cosmologic, the axis mundi that we're always trying to return to. There's a difference. It's nuanced, but it's an important difference. Yeah. But isn't there the Ebenashtia? Ah, okay. Oh, yes, there is in Jewish tradition. Where does that come from? That's exactly the question we're going to get to in a minute. Ah. Yeah, is what? Is? Ah, okay, so hold that. That's sort of a separate, okay, so hold that. That's a separate question. That's already later on when Chazal are codifying what is considered Makom Kadosh. So then they talk about, is it, you know, once it's consecrated, does it remain Kadosh forever? And that's already in a whole separate sort of, I would say, you know, set of Drabanan concept of how we designate sacred space. Right? And it falls into the whole category of how we treat sacred spaces and the rules about, you know, if you build a shul center, how do you have to behave in a shul? And that's different than how you behave in a movie theater. I'm going to put that on the side for now, but you'll see at the end of the class, we're going to sort of allude to it. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you first asked at the beginning, you know, what is, what is our, like, say, access mundi and, and, you know, and that it's from where the world was created, where was the world created from. 
So the first thing that came to my mind is, is what she said is evidence. Yes. So we're going to get to it in two seconds. We're going to get to it. We're going to get to it. Start. Yes. We're going to get there in, in a few more minutes, but just be patient because we have to, the Evan Hashtiyah, we're not there yet. First, we are in the Persian period. Okay, in the Persian period, we're allowed to go back and build the Beit HaMikdash, and we have the money from Cyrus, and we have some of the kalim that he's giving us back, and we have this kind of the, the halutzim that are willing to leave their lives in, in Babylon and come back to the land and build the Beit HaMikdash. But it's a more attenuated relationship with the center because majority of the Jews are in Babylon, a huge chunk of Jews are at, down in Alexandria, Egypt, and it's no longer, right, the natural sort of the land, we're no longer limited by the land. Okay, now look carefully in Divrei Hayamim. Now, Divrei Hayamim, we all know, is the retelling of Tanakh's history, right? It's sort of going from the beginning and it goes through the history. But one of the things that's fascinating is to compare how Divrei Hayamim writes or talks about the same events that we're talk we talked about earlier. Because basically, right, and again, it's not about which is true. It's about, right, what we're always asking is, why does the author of Shmuel Bet present it the way they do? What are they trying to teach us? And why is the author of Divrei Hayamim telling us a slightly different story? So go to Parak Chafet in Divrei Hayamim Aleph. Okay, go to Parak Chafet, chapter 22, and I'm going to read you a really, really interesting pasuk, and you're going to tell me what you think. I'm not going to give it away. Pasuk Hay. Okay. Chapter 22. Bayomer David Shlomo Beni Naar Varach, Vehabayit live not la Hashem, la Hagdil, le Maala, le Shame, Litiferet, le Hol Haratzot, Achina, na lo, Vayachen David la Rove, Lifne Moto. According to Zibrahimim, David really did majority of the, the base work for the Mikdash, right? He put the foundations down. And then he calls his son Shlomo and he tells him that he needs to build it. And it goes on. I wanted to do this. But then Hashem came to me and said, I wanted to build it. I told Hashem I want to build it. But he said to me, David, your hands are full of blood. Wait for the next generation. Is that what Hashem said in Shmuel? No, no in Shmuel, Hashem said, thank you very much. No, thank you. Here, Hashem, ha David has a different next. Now, again, it's very possible that Hashem said that in the same nivuah that he gave to Natan and Shmuel, but it's just not recorded there. Okay? What's important, though? What does David skip? Which piece does David not mention? What Hashem actually said. Right? And so already when the authors of Divrei Hayamim are speaking about Beit HaMikdash, there's already a different focus. There's a playing down of the notion that it's extraneous, and there's more of a centering on or a focus on how Hashem was in on this to begin with, and we're going to command, he commanded his son to do it, etc., etc. Okay, I'm going to read you another really fascinating pasuk. Go to the next Divrei Hayamim, Bet, Perak Gimel. And we see as follows. Tarek Gimel. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wait. Hold on. I have to go back there. One sec. No, no. Where? Yeah. Wait, where are you? 
In Pasuk Yudtet there. Yeah, I don't, that's not, I mean, the truth is David brings the Aron up in Shmuel Bed, right? That's the whole thing. If you remember with um, Peretz Uzzah, he's bringing the Aron up and then it's falling off and he, um, there's, there's a reason and that's, I think, David's explanation of why he wants to build it. Yeah, listen, Hashem was envisioned 100%. Hashem, the Aron was conceived of as Hashem's throne. Right? Hashem did not actually appear there, and we have the Kruvim to sort of, but the Aron, when Hashem, the epithet is, Hashem, when Hashem goes out to war and we bring the Aron out as, as help, it's Hashem Tzvakot, right, the God of hosts, Yoshev Kruvim. Hashem was really believed to be, and that's the same someone mentioned before, the Hakdashah of Yishayahu, right? Hashem was believed to sort of, that was his throne. That's also why, again, I don't want to be too repetitive from the other courses, that's why we put the Luchot Habrit there. Because after you sign a treaty in the ancient world, it's signed between the two parties, and then it's placed under the footstools of the gods, because they are the witnesses to that covenant. We put the Aron Habrit, right? That's, that's what we put inside. Um, I, I think the Aron concept was there from the beginning. Um, but you're right. It's interesting here, maybe, maybe what you're sort of talking to is the, the fact that there's a focus here, that the reason David did it was to bring the Aron. Um, I think it's there too, right? Because how is it fair that Aron Brit Hashem is in the Yiria and I'm in this beautiful cedar palace? Um, but again, if we read through the Prakim carefully, there's probably a lot of these sort of nuanced differences that we could sit on. You're 100% right. Okay, Perak Gimel, Pasuk Aleph. Tell me what you notice here. Vayachal Shlomo livnot et Beit Hashem. Yerushalayim, Behar HaMoriah, Asher near El David Avihu, Asher Hichin Bimkom David Bigoren Arabna Hayibusi. What is. It sounds like it's Shlomo's idea. Well, hold on, everyone missed it because we all take it as for granted. Where is the. What mountain is the Mikdash built on? Haramoriah, the Har where Avram did Akedah Yitzchak. How come we never heard that before? What's happening in the Second Temple period? The First Temple, it is very important in the early phases of Israelite identity and development, that we are clear that the sacred place does not eclipse our sense of what is truly sacred, which is Hashem and our relationship with him. Okay? But now fast forward, and what's happening? Now, what are the authors of Dereya? I mean, what's their primary purpose? Correct. Okay, so the pa excellent. The past with the present and... They actually want to create a sense that this place is actually holy from the beginning, that it's the same mythic mountain where Avraham brought the Akedah. Because to them, when you have Jews all the way out in Babylon and all the way in Alexandria and Jews that aren't really buying into this building, you need, right, imagine if we imagine the sacred space as a magnet, the further away they are, the stronger the magnetic pull needs to be to keep them connected. Right? If we say that the center exhibits the centripetal force, then what's creating that force? So what evolves in the Persian period is we focus on this is Har HaMoriah, this, like you're saying, connecting it to the past, the same place where Avram brought it. So obviously it was a sacred space to begin with. And it was a place where Hashem appeared to David and told him to buy the land. And, it's, and so what we have is almost a shift in the other direction where the place needs to be sacred because people are so attenuated and so far away from it and don't necessarily feel the void of that space. Okay? Now fast forward another 400 and something years. 
Okay, and now we're in the aftermath of the Betamic, the second Betamic Dash. Okay, and now Jews know they're going to be in exile for a very, very long time. Bless you. And one of the things that Chazal essentially do, what, what the Mishnah and the Gemara really essentially does is it creates a religious system that can exist anywhere. Right? So we can't bring Korban Pesach anymore, so we're going to have the Pesach Seder. And I can't bring Korban no three times a day, so I'm going to daven three times a day. And I can't, right? For everything that is lost, Chazal create a substitute where we can create sacred experiences and sacred places wherever we go. Okay? But if that's happening, then how do we have to compensate so that we still maintain a connection? What do we have to do? The notion of axis mundi has to become even that more powerful. So look inside. Uh, I started chronologically in the wrong order. My apologies. I started with a Ramban, but you can just look at it. And again, if you were to ask most of your children, right, or kids that are growing up in the Mamlach Tidati system or any, any yeshiva system, and say, right, um, why is the Beit HaMikdash where it is, they will probably rattle these answers off because this has become part of our collective Jewish way of understanding sacred space. It says, Now this is a very medieval conception. It's not, the, the medieval conception of creation is that it was ex nihilo, right? That there was nothing and then there's something and we don't, we have different understanding of it for a whole variety of reasons. From what point did it start? That there's this one rock that waters or, or nourishes the entire earth. That's where the world started from. That's where the world was created. And that's where everything, that's where Hashem started everything from. Okay? Go down to source five. Kishem shahatabur hazeh. Tabur is what? Belly button. Right? The Chazal imagined, they call it tabur ha'aretz for the same reason, just because they imagine that the baby, the fetus, right, because it comes out connected to the, to the umbilical cord, that the baby starts at the, at the tabur and then sort of develops from that center. So the same thing for the universe. Right? Again, it's all, we're always anthropomorphizing things. That's how we conceive. Kishem shah tabur hazen natun be'emtza ha'ish, kach eretz Yisrael nituna be'emtza ha'olam. And now they're going to bring a lot of different proof texts, but just jump down to the third from the bottom line. Eretz Yisrael yoshevet be'emtza'ito shel olam. Right? Uh, sorry, from the count three lines up from the bottom, right after it says shambet. So Eretz Yisrael yoshevet be'emtza'ito shel olam. So there's the world. In the center of the world is Israel. The Yerushalayim be'emtza'ita shel Eretz Yisrael. Write these concentric circles. Okay, so again, we keep moving inward to the ultimate place of sanctity. Just jump to the next one. Okay, I'm going to read the last Midrash in English just for simplicity because there's a lot of back and forth, okay? But I need you to now evoke that image we had, that Babylon had, okay, of the rock that was placed to stuff up or to cork 
the, that hole where creation happens and where Apsu, the threatening chaotic forces of water, always threaten to come and submerge the earth. Bring that image back up. Fifteen steps, Rafista said, to a certain rabbi who was arranging his agadahs before him. Have you heard of correspondence to what David composed his 15 songs of ascent? Thus, the other replied, said Rav Yochanan, when David dug the pits to the deep, the pits to the deep is when David was laying the foundations to the base of Mikdash, he had to dig deep down. The, sorry, the deep rose up and threatened to submerge the world. Apsu, okay, but not Apsu, because we are monotheists, so just the water. And David thereupon uttered the 15 songs of ascent and caused its waves, waves to subside. Now, what's the question you should ask now? If he's causing them to subside, why is, he call, why is it the sheer? The songs of ascent are the sheer hamalot, right? So they're saying, why are there 15 sheer hamalot, mizmore sheer hamalot in Zilin? Says, oh, because when David was building, building, digging the foundations, the waters were coming up. So he sang 15 sheer hamalot, and they went back down. But sheer hamalot, you would imagine, has the opposite effect. So, but if so, Astro Chista, ought it not be the songs of descent instead of ascent? Since you have reminded me, the other replied, I may say that it was stated thus. When David dug the pits, the deep arose and threatened to submerge the world. Is there anyone, David inquired, who knows whether it is permitted to inscribe the ineffable name upon assured and cast it into the deep that its waves should subside? Now, Rebchista is associated with a lot of magic. Okay, Rebchista had all of these sort of magic, um, he knew a lot of magic. So this would be, I would imagine, fall into sort of that cadre of things that Rebchista was, was um, sort of adept at. There was one nun who answered a word. Said David, whoever knows the answer and does not speak, may he be suffocated. Whereupon, Achitofel, right? So it's interesting that Achitofel kind of sits in the, sh lurks in the shadows and then comes up when he's scared to be punished because he was a shysty figure in Shmuel. Whereupon, Achitofel adduced a fortiori argument to himself. If for the purpose of establishing harmony between man and wife, the Torah said, let my name that was written in sanctity be blotted out by the water, how much more so may it be done in order to establish peace in the world? What's he referring to? What's his call of Homer? The Isha Sota. If Hashem allows our, his name to be written on a piece of paper and thrown into the Mayim HaMeorim for the sake of peace between husband and wife, Kava Homer for peace on the whole earth. He therefore said to him, It is permitted, David, thereupon inscribe the ineffable name upon a shirt, cast it into the deep, and it subsided 16,000 cubits. When he saw that it had subsided to such a great extent, he said, the nearer it is to the earth, the better the earth can be watered. Okay, so now it went too far down, and now the earth was going to be parched. And so he uttered the 15 songs of ascent, and the deep reascended 15,000 cubits and remained 1,000 cubits below the surface. Ula remarked, and then we're going to skip the last piece. Okay, what's happening here? And it's interesting, right? As much as the Tanakh polemicizes against certain ideas, they have staying power, right? Because they capture our imagination, because they are the way that we conceive of things, the way that we make sense of the world, the way that we understand, and the symbols that we use to talk about things, okay? So Tanakh polemicizes and ignores this idea of the chaotic forces of water. And then here in the period of the Gaonim, we're already, we're still recording stories that actually address it and use it as a, perhaps metaphor, perhaps believed to be literal. Okay, but again, what's happening here? 
The Tanakh needs to make sure early on when we, are dis when we are coming to grips with what monotheism is and what an aniconic religion is and what it means to be sacred and it's defined in all these new ways, the Tanakh is very, very clear to redefine or to undermine the notion of sacred space so we don't conflate it and confuse it with what actually is defined as sacred in Tanakh. But then when we're, more, when we're further away from the center, Right? And then how much more so after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, the legends and the stories and the sort of mythic connections about what this place actually is, they begin to take center stage because the people writing them needed the people that were everywhere spread out throughout the diaspora to understand just how important this center is and connect it to the Axis Mundi and creation of the world and Akedat Yitzchak and all of the other Midrashim that we didn't even touch upon today. Okay? And so again, it's never about which is right and which is wrong. That's not what we're asking. Right? What we're looking at is how these ideas develop and how now when we come here and we have all of these traditions sort of mixed in together, how, do we, how can we distinguish between them? How do we sort of pull apart the pieces so we can understand how they developed and why and what needs they were answering at each different phase in our development in thought and in sort of understanding what God is. Okay? Yeah? Wait, so I, I just want to try to get something clear in my mind. Uh, uh, so, like you said, you know, in, in the Mamakinati system and all these systems, if you ask somebody, uh, you know, why is the Beit HaMikdash where it is, they'll tell you all kinds of things, including that that was Har that's where the Akedah was, blah, 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 blah. Um, so, the, the mention of Har Moriah in, um, in, in uh, what's it called? So, that that is the first place. That's the first time it's, the connection is made. Yeah. The, the connection is made, and the was written during the Persian. Persian period. period. Yeah. So, um, okay. So, uh, so in other words, that this whole notion of harmonia, is is originally is is mentioned earlier as a, as where Abraham's <coughs> class is, right? Mm -hmm. But the connection of it to where the Beit Hamikdash is. Is is only from Divrei Ayamim. Correct. So they, they, um, I mean, they. Was this a like a, an existing tradition, or did they make this? Who up? knows? It could have or, been. It could have been a tra oral tradition that was passed down. It could. Who knows? We don't know. We don't know. Okay, don't but know. but in any case, it it reinforced the for all the Jews living all over the place, whatever the. Uh, Sanctity and Correct. The inherent sanctity, okay. which is different than sanctity created. Because don't forget, if you're living in Alexandria and you built a shul and you already have halachot that determined that this ritual space is now sacred, so what do I need that center for? Right? Chazal had this really important balance to strike. On the one hand, we could create sacred spaces everywhere and religion can exist outside the land because we don't have a choice, we have to. At the same time, they needed to maintain that connection. And there had to be something qualitative differently about, qualitatively different about the center in Yerushalayim than the center in Prague or in Spain or in anywhere else. That's, that's the fine line that Chazal were sort of walking. Yeah? Parenthetically, they have discovered that the place in the world that has the most, the, the strongest magnetic field. No way. Get out of here. That's so cool. That I didn't know how they figured Talk that, about inherent. That is actually very, very cool. That the place in the world, how did they discover that? That has the most, the strongest magnetic. What, like electromagnetic? What? That's so cool. 
It's fascinating, and the way that, that, that religion was kept alive by answering the needs of the people is, to me, the most, the most interesting. All right. Wow.